<laughs> I'll drive you crazy and I'll kill you all. I'm every nightmare you ever had. I am your worst dream come true. I'm everything you ever were afraid of. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Poplar Tapes. Uh, this is a podcast about uh, philosophy and politics and, and sometimes clowns, apparently. Uh, so we've uh, been away from a little for a little while, but uh, we're really excited to get back into it. And uh, I think uh, this is going to be a fun one. So my name is uh, Keegan Irish, and I'm here with my friend... Alex Bose, and uh, we are going to be talking about evil clowns. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a bit of a different uh, topic for us, but I guess like, do you remember in kind of the earlier two thousands when? Uh, I can't call them the aughts. I just like find that word so awful. Uh, in the earlier two thousands, when there were all of these zombie films coming out and then everyone was uh, coming up with all these kind of neat analyses of like why it is that zombies were having this cultural moment, what the, how they spoke to like the contemporary uh, experience of social life, you know, like, oh, maybe zombies like are this kind of stand in for consumerism and all this kind of thing. And, and that, that was fun, you know, that's that interesting. Lots of kind of, Good thoughts in there, and I feel like zombies having their time in the limelight have sort of fallen by the wayside, uh, and so <laughs> <laughs> now there are d- different kinds of cultural tropes that are like appearing uh, in the media landscape, you know. And one of the ones that we picked up on that we think is really weird is this figure of the evil clown. There's all of these movies and shows and so forth that uh, kind of use this figure. Uh, it's reappearing and specifically like this kind of entertainer who has become like an object of horror. You know, you even think about uh, the was it the third the third season of uh, Stranger Things? And um, Alex, did you watch that TV show? Uh, I I do, but I I don't remember the clown. Where's the clown in that? Okay, no, but there's like the <laughs> carnival. There's a carnival at the end. They have this right. whole like final mm-hmm. showdown against the Russians or whoever it is. Uh, I, I, in the context of this carnival that provides the backdrop for the horror. And there, there are these halls of mirrors and so forth. Um, so I, I think it's just really having like a cultural moment. Right, the carnival-esque. Yeah, the yeah. carnival-esque. Yeah. And like seeing that, uh, seeing entertainment uh, in as uh, a, a site of horror. And, yeah. you know, the clown and the circus, those are really easy ways to like evoke this idea of entertainment and to... Uh, pick up on a visual language. Uh, so um, that's what we're interested in. Why uh, are clowns, evil clowns in particular, Why the evil carnival, why is this having a cultural moment right now? And what does that tell us about uh, the social context in which these uh, media products are being produced? What does that tell us about uh, the current political climate? We just want to ask some of these kind of questions and have some fun with it. So, 
Okay, so maybe what we can do is just open things up by talking about um, a little bit of the history of the clown. Where did the clown come from? What are clowns? Why does it have this recognizable aesthetic? Where does that come from? And I'm going to toss it over to Alex to kind of just walk us through that that history a little bit. Okay, yeah, so no specialist on uh, clowns at all, <laughs> but... <laughs> uh, Today we see the figure of the clown with uh, the white face and you know the big smile and certain kinds of extravagant clothing. But big goofy shoes. Yeah, big goofy <laughs> shoes. Maybe maybe the the the, the red, the red nose. nose, like the thick yeah, red curly, nose. Yeah, curly red hair. I mean, that's a very particular <laughs> variation of the clown that we've been seeing maybe in the last century or something, like the last two centuries approximately. But one of the common motifs that you can find that kind of thread together a uh, figure that uh, has a resemblance, resembles the clown, is in the court jester who would uh, act as an entertainer for uh, uh, royalty. Old kind of like illustrations of the court jester show the court jester's costume with a, uh, a fool's cap. And the fool's cap is basically this weird hat with like bells dingling off of it. And uh, the shape of the hat is supposed to resemble uh, devil's, devil's horns or the tails of a donkey. And this hat has its origins in a celebration that would take place in uh, Catholic churches like during the 12th and 13th centuries called uh, the Feast of Fools. And the, during the Feast of Fools, uh, basically Holy Mass would uh, turn into what was known as uh, Devil's Mass. And things like uh, the altar would be desecrated and used as a table for eating and drinking. And people would be like playing dice and like they would perform a, a mock service and they would bring in a they bring in a donkey and uh, they would praise it and venerate it. Pretty pretty uh, blasphemous stuff. Yeah, <laughs> for that context. <laughs> anyway, so so it was it was uh, it was like this radical inversion, say uh, you could say, of the of the sacred order of the Catholic Church. Yeah, and also the kind of social order too, right? Like it's an mm-hmm. opportunity for people who maybe wouldn't normally have access to those parts of the church, um, they suddenly become the kind of ringmaster there. Uh, it becomes their domain. They have this this liberty with respect to a space which is normally very strictly uh, hierarchically organized. Exactly, exactly. So there's this paradoxical moment where the, the, the fool, the buffoon clown gets to rise the ranks and take the position and this is actually the etymology of the word the clown. The buffoon. Yeah. yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> yeah, uh, th- <laughs> this is actually the etymology of the word clown, which has in its history some of those layers of meaning of like a country bumpkin, somebody who is of like a, a, a like a serf, a peasant, a lower class farmer, uh, or an outcast. This kind of these a lot of those meanings are actually bound up in the the English word clown that we use today. Yeah. Exactly, and it's and uh, those elements. This idea of the outcast, somebody of the lower classes. This is also manifested in the way that the clown is dressed. So, I made the connection between the court jester's hat and the uh, feast of fools. But um, uh, later on, in other figures that kind of resemble the clown, like the harlequin, which is a pantomime, uh, and uh, later on the fool as well in Elizabethan theater. 
Uh, the Harlequin would wear like a costume that was diamond patterns. So it was kind of weird and extravagant. <laughs> uh, but the purpose of making these like really weird kinds of costumes was also to create a create a costume that it was supposed to be so so bizarre that the 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 fashion in the costume itself was kind of playing the role of this outcast, the pariah or whatever, trying to aesthetically place them there. And so this kind of idea of the costume too is taken up into the 19th century and we saw this with Joseph Grimaldi. And so Joseph Grimaldi is this English clown. He's he's famous for uh Joey the Clown, and <laughs> um, and he he's been considered by the Anglophone world, or maybe even mainly the British world, uh, as a pinnacle of the figure of the clown and and kind of the the shift into the idea and aesthetic of the modern clown, because he was somebody who took the clown to like a whole new level where the clown, you know, wasn't only about pantomime or uh, slapstick comedy, but he, you know, he kind of brought a sense of soul to the clown. You know, he brought a personality to the clown and gave the clown a, a, a human character. Right. And as well, if I could just uh, make another point, it's like he also took that kind of like the character of the fool the bumpkin the harlequin that we less so the harlequin but like yeah the bumpkin the fool the court jester that we've been talking about and embodied that as a show in itself whereas previously like in different forms of like the commedia dell'arte in the in this uh like uh comedic history there would be different archetypal characters that would relate to one another in costume in guise but he really took this clown figure what would come to be known as the clown and made that a show unto itself as like the center uh, of um what you what why you would come to the circus you would come to see the clown perform and that was new uh and so i think he deserves some kind of artistic credit or something like this <laughs> for that maneuver uh or that that choice yeah yeah <laughs> credit where it's due yeah no, absolutely. But uh, so Grimaldi, Grimaldi is also interesting because while he was an extremely successful clown and his shows brought in quite a bit of profit on the London stages at the time, he was somebody who was conned out of his money a lot. Uh, he had a really, I mean, he had a really depressing life. Uh, he was born to a family of uh, entertainers. And it's been said that his father was really severe with him. He would uh, drill him very, very hard. He started on the stage at around like the age of two. And his biographer at one point says that uh, Grimaldi would be on stage dodging his angry father. You know, the entertainment was him evading his angry father charging at him. And throughout his life... Um, as he got older, Grimaldi got married, and then his uh, his first wife died during childbirth, so he lost his child and his wife. And then he remarried, and he tried to get his new son from his new marriage to avoid being in entertainment industry at all, and uh, he failed to do this, and his son became a clown as well but lived in his father's shadow and became an alcoholic and died at in like 21. And as his, <laughs> and so as he got older, you can't help but laugh. It's like, I know too. it's like so fucking horrible. Yeah. So, 
So as and then so he lost. And his, his name literally has Grim in the name. I know his name has Grim in the name. So Grimaldi gets older, you know, and he's, he begins to have serious physical and physiological problems because of his entertainment. Because the entertainment that he does doesn't only involve kind of like pantomime, right? I mean, it had involved get, taking beatings. You know, it was like mut- like physical beatings and like mutilation for entertainment. And apparently the theaters where he would perform had become extremely violent and dangerous uh, at certain points because the crowd would get so into it and rowdy and people would throw shit and like throw bottles. People had died at some of these performances. Uh, so, I mean, it was it was rough, you know, it was a really rough life. And, uh, yeah. and so Grimaldi kind of brings this tragic sadness to the whole character and the figure of the clown. And this sadness and this... like tragedy that's part of his character and the way that he embodies the clown and performs the clown is also simultaneously hidden beneath the smiley mask that he wears on his face. So I noticed this similarity between uh, the story of Grimaldi and the story of uh, Shia LaBeouf. Shia LaBeouf recently came out with a autobiographical film called Honey Boy. It's basically telling the story of his rehabilitation process uh, from kind of like doing drugs and the childhood trauma that he experienced being raised by his father, who was a clown, uh, and who would physically beat him, you know, uh, raised him in an environment, uh, an unhealthy environment that was conducive to drug addiction. You know, he would give him cigarettes. So there's this this tragic story, you know, about Leboeuf growing up in this environment and being exploited by his own father, being rehearsed and drilled really brutally to play acting roles in uh, in the hopes that his son would one day become like a famous uh, performer. This story seemed very similar to Grimaldi where Leboeuf is gaining an income and he actually becomes the only source of income for himself and his father. The very name of the film, Honey Boy, is kind of like a reference to like Sugar Daddy or like Sugar Mama or whatever, you know, like, like there's this element of prostitution going on there that... Uh, that's alluded to in in the title. Yes. These figures of the clown still have this element of tragedy and sadness to them, but Mm. they also have deeply buried trauma. So we talked, Alex talked a little bit about uh, this figure of Joseph Grimaldi and like this 19th century image of the clown. And so I wanted to point out another example of that would be the opera Pagliacci. So this was an Italian opera that was originally performed in 1892. It's a story of someone who's a clown, but the the figure of the clown is someone who's kind of all too human. And he... um, has a drinking problem and like commits a murder and like is tormented by the guilt and so there's all this kind of like very human complexity in the character of the clown and you see that as well in in Grimaldi you know Grimaldi is this kind of all human all too human type of uh, individual and as the in a way like an important originator of the clown he um, really brings to light uh, this the kind of ambivalence of the figure of the clown that at the same time the clown is a fun smiling entertainer that uh is supposed to just kind of 
bring joy, joy. resource. <laughs> yeah. And yet they have this human life where they're racked by these kind of brutal experiences. You know, here's somebody who um, is also like a classic working class figure, you know, as like um, a child laborer. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. And then uh, has this like uh, this brutal life of poverty and loss. So um, I think that that really points to the ambivalence of the clown figure, and you also see this in Pagliacci. Um, and but in when, as the clown like moved to the United States, and I think it's important to like interpose this idea between the analogy of like the contemporary film, where we see the clown again has this ambivalence, but something happened to the clown in between those two instances of its like ambivalence character of its ambivalence showing which is that like that ambivalence was actually repressed and so in like in post-war america who are the most famous clowns you know it's bozo the clown and it's ronald mcdonald and these are clowns that um exist in a very confident society in a society that it has this kind of like uh, optimistic sense of itself as like on it on the way somewhere and the clown is like an unambiguous entertainer for children you know it's yeah it's a funny character that the happy meal that everyone laughs about like it's just a grand old time you know <laughs> whereas like today uh mcdonald's after the whole uh after this event in 2016 where there are all the evil clown sightings where people would dress up as clowns like and have knives and attack people it's so fucked which is twisted as hell after that happened McDonald's was like alright like Ronald's gonna have to take a back seat like we can't use him as much in our marketing and stuff <laughs> like like the image of the clown the, the clown had like a huge PR problem right like uh, so, <laughs> oh my god! Okay, but like, so what changed? What changed? And uh, so there are a few kind of like key events that maybe I'd point out in like clown history. So there's um, in the seventies there was what's his name John Wayne Gacy, the serial killer, right? He killed the young boys, but he worked as a clown, and so in the media he became the killer clown. You know, there are all these headlines that uh, portrayed him in this way. So it began to... Suddenly there was like this suspicion around the unambiguous entertainer. And that image really solidified in the 80s when Stephen King wrote the book It. And so I, I just want to point that out to say that while there's a resonance between like the recent Shia LaBeouf film and the much older story of... Grimaldi the Clown, mm-hmm. where in both cases uh, it showcases the ambivalence of the clown figure who's at once the entertainer and also the person who has this like tragic life of uh, abuse and overwork. You know, yeah. this, all this stuff has happened in between those two res. And so to see that reemerge, we have to ask ourselves, like, why? Why now? Why does that story suddenly speak to us in a way that it hasn't spoken to us for, you know, more than a century? And uh, I think those are really kind of interesting questions to ask. And so when we see this symbol suddenly, like, having all these re- all this kind of reemergence, you know, we've got Batman's Joker, we've got the newer It movies, we've got, like, other 
clown movies, Terrifier. We've got whatever. All these, all these clown spinoff type uh, type films. Um, you know, it's worth asking ourselves why that why that's going on. Um, okay, so okay, let's talk about it. Yeah, let's talk about so, it. Let's talk about it. <laughs> so it uh, it's the Stephen King book, but there have been multiple films made out of the uh out of this book and so the first film isn't exactly a film it was like a made for tv thing i think it was like a tv miniseries actually yeah that was released in 1990 so you kind of had some good points about that do you want to like bring some of those up again sure um so one of the things that i noticed about the figure of the clown at least in the first part of the series was that the clown becomes a shapeshifter it's less focused on this very humanized character you know the the figure of the clown here in in the way that it shapeshifts it takes on the form of the fear of each of its prey and feeds on that fear and i realized that you know th- this can be kind of seen as a metaphor for the ways in which uh, political rhetoric around scapegoating the other plays on and feeds on fear. So the monster here kind of becomes, in this kind of political context, an expression of the fear of the other and kind of belongs to a new tradition of monster and horror. So there's like the tradition of comedy and entertainment on the one hand, and like this collision with uh, the tradition of monsters and the tradition of like horror film. And found it very interesting to think about the way in which the clown here basically has, it has many, it actually has many different faces, right? Like it becomes kind of like John Carpenter's The Thing, like it's a lot more plastic and it uh, can be the metaphor for any form that political rhetoric will take to create a monster out of like the other or something like this. Yeah, it's interesting, like, as the clown has sort of fallen out of favor in comedy and in this kind of lighthearted entertainment where the the clown itself is the mask, they kind of pull away the mask to be like, oh, it's a person behind the mask. And even then, there's that ambivalence of who that person is. It's like increasingly the mask becomes the face itself, you know, and it puts on these other masks, like the true face of the cl- of of the creature in it is in this clown, (laughs) you know, it shifts into these other beings, but then it returns to the clown. And that's like the singular identity in which you recognize it. So there's been this kind of interesting shift of the role of the, the mask, the role that the makeup plays um, Mm -hmm. in terms of uh, identification in the way in which this figure is used in uh, storytelling. I really like these It movies. I think they're really interesting. I know a lot of people kind of have been critical of the newer It films for various reasons, but I think that it's compelling that they're compelling stories and it's compelling that they're telling this story right now. So in both the older older It miniseries and the contemporary films, there are certain motifs that show up that are really, really interesting. So um, one of the big ones that stood out to me was the voices that come up from the drain. You know, Beverly is in the bathroom and you hear this, uh, the voices down the drain or uh, in the very beginning of the films when 
uh, Georgie, you know, is sailing his little boat down the rain water and then it's washed into the sewer and then the voice of the clown comes from within the sewer. Georgie, you know, <laughs> he's after you in there. Hiya, Georgie. It's- yeah. <laughs> so you're looking down into uh, into the sewer, into the drain to see what, what has been washed away. And so I think this image is like a pretty evocative image that seems to have pretty clearly be a sort of metaphor for uh, the return of the repressed, right? There's that which we allow to disappear from view that which we attempt to banish suddenly it speaks to us and when you hear that voice when you hear it from the drain you know it's very startling calls you to attention uh and it questions the necessity and the efficacy of our banishment of our oppression in the first place so i think like one of the major themes of the it stories is that they're stories about the destruction of traumatic memory and its habit of resurfacing, right? In the 1990s miniseries, one of the so much of the time of the film is actually taken up with these phone calls where Mike, the character who has remained in the town of Derry in Maine, he realizes that there has been this return of the repressed from childhood. And so he makes these phone calls to all of his friends who have this pact, right, that should the creature return, they will come back to Derry in order to deal with it. And so much of the actual runtime of the film is taken up in making these phone calls. So it's obviously like a very important motif, right, where um, the trauma that took place in youth it can reappear in the life of an adult and it can shatter the facade of their integration into society. So in each and every case, like when they get that phone call, they have this like moment of horror and the kind of life that that is briefly shown for them just like immediately falls away. They have to abandon it and make this return, right? It's demanded of them. So I think you could say that each of the characters in the film, um, as it turns out, they are wearing a mask and they are in turn a kind of performer. And when they get this call, it shatters that uh, their ability to continue performing, right? The return of the traumatic memory brings you back. So just to keep kind of pulling on that thread... Uh, the personal trauma in the films, I think it also, it turns out to be a social phenomenon. So in the miniseries, you have the character of Mike, who has this book filled with photographs that are from his, given to handed down to him from his father. In the newer movies, it's interesting, they changed it, and uh, it's actually the character of Ben, the new kid, and so he's become obsessed with the history of the town of Derry. And so they uh, are led into his room and so forth, and you see all these photographs on the wall that he has of all the history, where he's collaged out in this kind of like conspiracy theory type board, all of these disappearances and like traumatic acts that have happened in 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 the past and so the the acts are kind of or sorry the 
events are kind of interesting too. Uh, so the original event is the disappearance of 200 settlers who originally founded Derry, right? Um, and then later there's like the industrial revolution moment where uh, there's uh, this ironworks explosion that kills hundreds of people or 88 people. I think it's actually the number that they use. Uh, interestingly, um, each uh, each generation experience has its own experience of like this inexplicable horror. But each of these horrifying moments, each of these disappearances, each of these violent events points back to the original disappearance, the original forgetting, um, the original remaking of history in the um, in the American past. Right, which you ha- we have to say would be uh, the destruction and erasure of indigenous peoples, and I think that's most clearly clearly alluded to in like the silence around this kind of disappearance of the settlers as that like original moments, the original kernel there. But the interesting thing is that like the children themselves, like they don't have any real concept of what that horror is that lies at the heart of their society, and no one else will talk to them about it. So what you're kind of forced to conclude is that the price for them to actually integrate into society, and we can make the more general point, I think, uh, that the film is making, is that the price of integration into the kind of peace of white society um, is the total disavowal of that foundational violence. You have to forget it. Um, and so when that trauma resurfaces, as it inevitably will in repression, right, it shatters that calm of white civility and normalcy. Uh, so it exposes the wound that it had so ineffectually papered over. Um, so when the children kind of, they don't actually know what that like original violence is that's never made clear to them in the film is this nebulous force that reappears in various forms in the form of their particular fears, right? In the forms of uh, the death of a loved one, in the form of the abuse like suffered at the hands of a father. Um, but these kind of violent instances that people go through in their life, like those things are you know, I think one of the themes that the film has and, and, and points that it makes really nicely are that those are manifestations of that original violence, right? Like that's a, a shape-shifting recapitulation of that first violence, um, that colonial violence, which is always, yeah. You're making a really good point here. And this can actually be drawn back to the discussion about Grimaldi and... LeBeuf, where they are faced, both of them as child performers, are faced with the threat of the violence of uh, their their fathers as they're being rehearsed and conditioned into uh, playing a particular role, right? Yeah. Uh, so there's this logic of violent conditioning that's going on. And like in each of these cases, the kind of violent abusive conditioning force wears the face of the of the clown it wears the white makeup you know it wears the white mask it's so interesting that today we're using that symbol again we've picked up that symbol of 
having to wear the mask, have uh, the clown mask, the the permanent grin, you know, to have the grin like in uh in in uh but the dark knight, right? The 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 Joker's grin is permanently cut into his face, right? So he's gone beyond just like putting on a mask that you can take off to having it like to wearing the scars of the conditioning to become the um uh, the person who uh, fits into society. In his case, though, I think it's a, it's a little more complicated because he doesn't actually fit into the society, but he justifies the existence of the social order of which, like, Batman is a part, right? Like, the threat of of Joker. He's, he, he's like that court jester who, even though he um, is, like, an outcast, he has an essential social function in justifying the place of the king above him. Similarly, the Joker has this essential function in justifying the violence of, uh, of the police in the form of Batman, of justifying... Um, this kind of extravagant wealth of which, like, Batman uh, represents, right? And so he has gone beyond just sort of, like, he can't take the mask off. It's always uh, always marked into him. And I think that's what one of the things that this cl- that the clown figure, especially the kind of evil clown, the bad clown, is, like, coming to signify for us is the inability to remove the mask of of the performer even though the performance is the kind of thing that we were like abused into into performing that we were trained to do through this uh, highly uh, repressive um like super ego figure these comments can also be considered even in terms of the expectations that economic rules in general have of you, mm-hmm. you know, if you're going to work, usually, I mean, it, of course it depends on where you work and who's your boss, et cetera. But in so many of my working class jobs that I've had, like low wage jobs, you are expected to leave all of the emotional human dimensions of yourself behind and put on the clown mask, the happy mask, you know? Yeah. So you, with when you're interacting with uh, customers, right? When you're yeah, talking you to people. Yeah, you put on people, the permanent grin. You have to put on yeah. the permanent grin. Yeah, you have to become yeah. you have to become the clown, you know? And and so that ambivalence also it's almost like taken up, you know, we these these masks that we have to put on to play roles in capitalism and neoliberalism and, uh, you know, involve uh, hiding the, uh, or burying the, the horrible, the horrific truth of what's going on. <laughs> yeah. There's no, there's no honesty in it. Like you, you have to perform your, there's the expectation of performance. And I think that's why people identify with these, with these characters because, because they have that experience of like being internally, uh, tortured and then externally having to perform. So in the more recent film Joker, uh, which there was all this kind of media hype around, and I'm not, tr- I'm not, I'm not out here to go to bat for this film. Like I don't think it's like good in, a, in that <laughs> sense. And then, you know, there's m- many terrible things about this film, but um, it it has some interesting elements. And so like people really are identifying with this kind of Joker figure or whatever, precisely in the sense that he increasingly like puts on this 
the makeup, the mask throughout the film until he finally like becomes fully the uh, the Joker figure in the, his like the apotheosis of his murderous madness, right? Um, but as well, there's a really interesting element to the film that's sort of like in the background where uh, the uh, father of Batman, so Thomas Wayne, you know, billionaire of Wayne Industries or whatever, he's running for mayor of Gotham in this film. And uh, he's a very like crass crass billionaire has no respect for the poor and he uh describes the poor as clowns right and uh then they as they begin to riot and like try attempt to have this like popular uprising which you know is portrayed in the film as like extremely anarchic and violent um they they wear these clown masks you know you demonize the worker, you like push and push and uh, you humiliate them and turn them into literally a clown. But then the clown twists into something like frightening into an object of horror, you know, and it's like the very kind of person into whom the working class has been like forced in the way that they're being made subject by like these relationships of uh, power and humiliation, you know, that suddenly like becomes something uh, like an object of revulsion, fear and disgust, you know, <laughs> and it's like, it's us like this is what we have become like we're afraid and disgusted of the kind of people that we are of the lives that we are performing. And by like giving it the symbol of the mask, we're able to like externalize it from ourselves and like look at it and uh, maybe think about it in this way. Um, so all this stuff. It's really interesting. These films. Uh, another example. Um, let's go. The Purge. Uh, have you seen these films? The Purge? Uh, I haven't. I haven't okay. seen The Purge. In, in, tell me. So uh, in these films, they there's this new government that kind of rises to power. The new founding fathers, right? And they're just kind of like an explicitly fascist group who uh, calls on like the American traditions or whatever and they think that they can reduce crime by having the one night where the purge happens and so this is the time where there are no laws and you can go out and just kill wantonly and uh, of course like it, it disproportionately affects the poor and the marginalized whereas like the wealthy are like secure in these uh in in these highly secure uh mansions and bunkers and shit with like private security that they hire and all this kind of stuff right cyber trucks so it's like the class <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so it's like the class differential is like really stark in these in these films. But the people who like participate and like generate the violence of the um uh of the Persian night, they'll wear these clown masks, you know? And so again, they're serving that essential social function, which legitimizes and upholds the the um, hierarchical order at the same time that they're officially outside of it, that they aren't sanctioned, right? So they're just like the court jester who's the outcast and yet upholds the logic of the monarchy uh the court of the king of the monarchy yeah and so similarly like the um bandits or whatever you want to call them in the clown masks who are running around murdering people on purge nights they're creating that violence and fear and they're terrorizing um the poor 
and in so doing, they're precisely legitimizing the uh, the the social order. So there's this like paradoxical relationship between in 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 a lot of these stories, and in I think the figure of the clown as it appears in popular culture today, especially the the menacing evil clown. There's this paradoxical element where it's like we're afraid of the very thing that we've become of the very performance of our um, social role, our economic role of our whiteness. We're afraid of that performance that we've been disciplined into. And yet we're also aware that that fearful creature, that monster is necessary for this social order to continue to function as it is today. And we recognize that that is insane, <laughs> right? Like we feel the yeah. madness of that. Like this is, I think, what is playing out in all these films because yeah, a lot definitely. of these films are about people going mad, right? Yeah. Like whether it's in It's where you're repressing these these traumatic memories and they resurface and like your psyche is not your own, the unconscious is haunting you, whether um, – you know, it's in Joker where you are becoming this monster. You know, it's like in each of these cases, that's that's what's uh, yeah, that's what's going on, right? Like, yeah, I mean, even even if you think about climate disaster, climate catastrophe, you know, warfare, resource extraction, you know how you're being exploited, but you're still going to work and participating in your own exploitation, all of these things. It's yeah. maddening. It's so maddening. Mm-hmm. You know, we like so many of us are aware of how fucked up things are. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and yet we like still get up and like fucking yeah. grind, you know, and exactly. still do it and you know, it's it's extremely maddening. You it, know, and it's, it's like so this absurd. Rep- you feel like you're a yeah. clown. You're mm-hmm. a joke. You know, yeah. you're like my yeah. life's a fucking joke right now. Like I I wake up, I look at the news. There's an entire continent on fire. Like yeah. I see these photographs. It's utterly apocalyptic. And it's like, all right, well, I'm gonna go in and just like work my service job. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> like, as though nothing <laughs> is going on. As though nothing's different. You know, I'm performing this role, and this performance is absurd. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. so that that's the clown. Yeah. Okay. We've said a lot. We've made a lot of these political connections, and that was really fun to talk about those films. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to transition now into making the political connection a bit more explicit? And I think by doing that, we are trying to answer this question that we opened up with, like, why now? Like, why is the figure of the evil clown so popular in media right now yeah right yeah i mean we could think of uh how politics has become a huge theater or spectacle you know Mm -hmm. it's a a huge entertainment industry at this point i remember you know we saw this with the political campaign when trump was going to be elected you know a Mm -hmm. year before he got the election in america i remember people following the debates and, you know, looking at his Twitter feed and laughing at the way that he makes fun of other candidates. And, like, he became this kind of, like, clown and comic. Yeah. You know, a comedian. He's an entertainer. That, you know, that comedy uh, also reveals what you had said before about this paradoxical kind of role where the the clown is actually, you know, 
whereas you'd have thought that the comedian and the clown uh, were somehow on the margins of society, making critiques and offering perspectives that might be, you know, that might be able to challenge the the social and political order that exists. Mm-hmm. You have, you know, in Trump, that wedding of the comedian and the politician where, you know, or even the figure that we saw, the reverse or the inverse that takes place with the carnivalesque and the Feast of Fools where you have, yeah. you know, the fool who takes the position of the, the monarch, right? Yeah. Like, so, so you know, we uh, we live in the permanent feast of fools. Yeah, we <laughs> basically right. It's the unending yeah. feast of fools. Yeah, yeah, when you look at figures yeah. like Trump, like Boris Johnson, you know, these are guys who um, are a joke. Like anyone can look at them and see that they are foolish buffoons. Like that they're mocked, laughed at, and reviled, and yet they are the pinnacle. Of power today, yeah. <laughs> so that that's really the evil clown, you know. Yeah. It's that wedding between the utmost heights of power and authority and violent potential with this kind of like entertaining buffoonery, but it also it brings in or makes explicit just like that total madness that infects the highest levels of our contemporary society. Like, I don't think anyone could seriously claim with in good faith that people like uh, Tr- Trump and Boris Johnson are, are rational actors. No, no. You know, are rational state actors. Like, we know that's not true. You know, we know that they are these, like, chaotic, capricious, capricious, id-driven, desirous, like, bloated, disgusting figures. Like, we know that. They, like, (laughs) it's so obvious on the surface of it, you know? (laughs) Like We see through the mask. we are at that point where it's, like, the mask, yeah, you see through the mask, but the mask is not even, it's hardly... It's not differentiated from like their actual faces. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's know, undifferentiated. <laughs> yeah, they have the they permanent have the grin, grin of an grin. utter madman, and like that is like <laughs> the <laughs> pinnacle of our society. And so, like, why are we afraid of the evil clown? Like, it's so obvious in a way. <laughs> We're afraid of the evil clown because you should be, because the evil clown's fucking terrifying, dude. And um, it's in, it's in, it has the ultimate power. It's it's Pennywise, the dancing clown. You know, he he has all of these powers, and he he's feeding off your fear, and uh, he's a monster. Yeah. So it's with good reason that I think we uh, have. I, I think that the cultural image of the evil clown is an expression of the deeply held anxiety of the direction of our social order, where this figure is at the pinnacle of power. Mm-hmm. So now I think I, that point that that point seems obvious. I don't know if we want to belabor it. So I think now we make the turn, which is very interesting and maybe a bit more counterintuitive, but helps loop um, the kind of liberal parties into this narrative as well, because it's not only 
the Trump and the Boris who are cruel, uh, violent buffoons, who are evil clowns. Yeah, right? yeah. It's actually yeah. the Justin Trudeau's of the world. Yeah, yeah, because, like, whereas, you know, we could say that Trump and uh, Boris Johnson have that permanent grin kind of carved into their faces, uh, Trudeau... You know, he's got a bit of that, but he still, like, also wears a mask, you know? But we had the moment uh, <laughs> last year where the mask came off yeah. and the makeup went on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when, That's true. Uh, yeah. So these images came up yeah. of Trudeau wearing blackface. And so this is an extremely revealing moment. But it also inscribes the kind of liberal elite figure into this narrative of the evil clown pretty effectively. Yeah. Because there is no eviler iteration of the clown than the blackface performance. I think it is fair to say. So, and it also is an extremely telling kind of performance because it tells us the function of these entertainers, these masked entertainers, um, which is to reinforce and solidify white identity. And so obviously Trump and Boris are doing this, right? They appeal to white identity, they demonize the racialized other, and then they enact policies that are explicitly violent towards those people. But the liberal politicians are not pure of this kind of behavior. They also are involved with the performance of and reproduction of white identity. Um, Blackface in particular, like, this is something that white people do together, you know, and it's a way that they would cut loose, um, that they enact their desires own fantasy yeah and they they yeah they enact their desire that they can't do when they wear the perpetual uh mask of whiteness uh and they they participate in the kind of peace of white society but there are these moments these moments of inversion like the uh the fool at the uh, at the altar as their table yeah um there are these moments of inversion where they invert the racial hierarchy for fun and as like a release valve for the repression and the pressure that builds up um, in the construction of, of white identity. Um, so I think that is sort of the ultimate figure of the clown, you know, or, or where it ends. Uh, it's that all of we're and why the figure of the clown resonates, especially as like an object of fear and revulsion. Yeah. It's because, yeah, we're afraid of the performance of racial identity into which we have been fundamentally conditioned. And when we look out at the world and see these kind of horrors that it is wrought, we see that mirrored in ourselves and we know that we are constructing those identities and uh, participating in it. And our culture is having that moment unconsciously. And it's showing up in this kind of nightmarish figure of the evil clown. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mic drop. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Except I just bought this, so I don't want to. I don't want to damage it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, the clown's actually really fun to think about, and there's so many things you can bring into this. You know, like uh, <laughs> to think of both like our leaders and ourselves as clowns engaged in these goofy, uh, exaggerated performances. You know, it's like. Yeah, that's 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 relatable. That's comprehensible, and um, it has a kind of timeless quality. But at the same time, it it's like a me- really showcases the contemporary moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, absolutely, it showcases the contemporary moment. You know, it, it's a figure and a role that actually, you know, it doesn't it doesn't only exist in like the theater, right? It it uh, it. It reappears in film and literature. It reappears in your workplace environment. You know, it's reappearing in politics, mm-hmm. playing out in in all these different ways. And it's like it's this exceptional figure because not everyone's a clown. But then it's also the most normal thing in the world because we are. It turns out all clowns. <laughs> 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 We're just not all evil clowns, man. <laughs> okay, do you want to wrap it there? Sure, yeah, let's, let's wrap it there, I guess. Yeah. Okay, so thank you guys so much for tuning in. If you have stuck with us thus far, this has been your episode of The Poplar Tapes. If you liked what you heard, please feel free to follow us on social media. Um, hit us up at Twitter at the Poplar Tapes. Uh, we also have a, an Instagram as well, and uh, we also have an email now too. That's new. So uh, what's what's the name of that, Alex? Uh, the Poplar Tapes at gmail.com. Perfect. So if you guys uh, liked what you heard or have any questions or suggestions for what we might do in the future, feel free to uh, send us an email or hit us up on social media. And as well, um, we had a lot of fun recording this episode, so. If you liked it as well, like we'd really appreciate it if you share it with your own friends and share it on social media, that kind of thing. Just help us kind of grow the podcast. As well, I really want to give a big shout out to uh, Dan Bose and Jacob Irish, who are going to be editing this uh, podcast and are doing the post-production. So thank you very much to them. And uh, yeah, so thanks to everyone who's been listening thus far. Thank you.